welcome to a new world of entertainment. The ultimate entertainment platform. Featuring, from Winkler Pictures and Mike Up Gaming, Mike Winkler. From Condiment Games, Jeremy Larson. Jason Kabasek. Forsaken Avenger, Martin Houston. Created by friends. We feature live discussions on Facebook, Twitch, and YouTube. In-depth podcast discussions. Gaming streaming featuring Mike Up Gaming and Forsaken Avenger and written movie, short film, and television reviews. Subscribe to our podcast and visit our site for more info. Welcome to LCA Entertainment. On this episode of our podcast... Your instructor is one of the finest pilots this program has ever produced. His exploits are legendary. What he has to teach you may very well mean the difference between life and death. Your reputation precedes you. I have to admit I wasn't expecting an invitation back. They're called orders, Maverick. Hello, everyone, and welcome back into LCA Entertainment. Mike Winkler here with you on this special episode as I will be breaking down my thoughts and opinions on Top Gun. Top Gun Maverick, this film has been in the works for a very, very, very long time. As a matter of fact, we were supposed to get this film as early as 2019, but we didn't. And then 2020 came and it was delayed numerous times because of the COVID pandemic. 
And then it was supposed to come out in 2021. And now here we are finally in May of 2022. And we have finally gotten Top Gun Maverick. Okay, so let me start the episode just by saying this. I ended up watching Top Gun, the original, the night before I went to go see this. Now, I had seen Top Gun, the original, of course, before. But it was a long time ago, and I was very young. And I remembered when I watched the first one, I thought it was good, but I wasn't as impressed by it as a lot of people were. Now, I know a lot of people that were around in the 80s, you know, that was the big film. They talk about it all the time. And I understand the 80s nostalgia factor of the original. Um, and, and now that I got a chance to rewatch the first one, it is still a very good film. But I couldn't help but see some of the story problems. Um, some of the unbelievable falling in love with, with, with Maverick and and uh, Kelly McGillis's character. I, I thought the love story moved a little too quick. It, it I really didn't buy into it as much. Um but the the, uh, the 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 flight sequences were awesome for the time. Uh, the story of Maverick and dealing with Goose's death was also very intriguing, very interesting, and, and it was sad. But I felt like the original could have done so much more. Maybe it was just because of the times. Uh, but I always thought the movie needed more. So going into Top Gun Maverick, I was excited. The trailers had me excited. I, I saw all the... Uh, the air combat sequences and hearing all the buzz about how all these sequences were real, that when, when, when Tom Cruise wanted to make the sequel, he wanted all of the air flight sequences to be real and authentic. He didn't want them to be all CGI computer graphics. That's why in this film, you see that shot of all of the surroundings around them in the cockpit. Whereas in the original film, you kind of only saw those tight shots where you saw little bits of the clouds behind him, but you really didn't see the, the ins and outs of flying through all the different obstacles and, and the ground and the mountains and, and whatnot and what have you. So to see it this way, that right there alone had me really excited to see the film. And I kept hearing about hearing it on the biggest screen possible. Now, the disappointing thing here is I have yet to see it in IMAX or on the, uh, the screen X screen where they have the one screen in front of you and then the two left to right of you, uh, they just recently put it in a theater like that near me. It's about a half hour, 35 minutes away from me. And I still would love to check the movie out at that Screen X or at least head up to IMAX and see it that way because the sequences are so incredible. Even seeing it on a bigger screen that I saw at my theater, at um, my local theater, which is still a pretty good-sized screen, it looked amazing. So going into this, I was really excited for those sequences alone. But I was really curious to see how much nostalgia would be in this film? Because the biggest problem with a lot of these legacy sequels today is that they rely on the nostalgic factor way too much. They also feel the need that when a, when a legacy character enters the screen, the music has to build this big eclipse and act like it's some big moment. And, and, and I understand why they're doing that for the audience, because if they haven't seen these characters in 30 plus years, it becomes a big moment to see them again. But at the same time, it's kind of like, why are we building the audience back into this big reveal? If this is supposed to be a true sequel to whatever the original is. It should play to, oh, we're seeing the character again. Not a big deal. And they feel the need to play up that nostalgia factor. So I was curious to see how this would be pulled off. Because that was one of the mistakes that Disney had made with 
I believe the force awakens with episode seven of star Wars, because when, when Han Solo and Chewbacca enter into the shot on the Falcon, when Ray and Finn are hiding beneath uh, the Falcon, the music builds to seeing them again. And it almost feels as though like, if this is episode seven to episode six, we we last saw Han Solo and Chewbacca just a movie ago. So why is this big reveal moment in the film? If, if you've watched the movies consecutively and just seeing one movie to the other, it should just be, Oh, we're seeing them again. You know, they're entering back into the film and in, in force awakens. I just felt as though that should not have been a big of a musical moment or a big moment as it was. I know we hadn't seen him as Han Solo, in 30 odd years, but seeing that movie, the movie shouldn't be playing into that. It should be playing along with the rest of the saga. So that's a mistake. I believe, I believe star Wars had made with Disney had made with star Wars in episode seven. Um, other films have kind of made similar mistakes. Even TV revivals have done a similar thing too. So I was curious to see if this was going to fall into the same narrative. And I'm happy to say that it doesn't, it doesn't. All the reviews have said that this is the way legacy sequels should be made, and they're exactly right. This is a a nearly perfect legacy sequel. It has all the right little bits of nostalgia sprinkled through without being, you know, obsessively compulsive with it, making you feel like, oh, look at it, it's been 30 years. Look at this moment, look at this moment. It doesn't play into that. The opening of the film is the is the opening of the original. And I'm actually happy with that. Some people might think, oh, why are we playing with the same openings? That's the right bit of nostalgia. Because even though we haven't seen his character in 30 plus years, the opening of Top Gun is iconic. And duplicating, it's not feeling like going down the nostalgia factor again. It's just one sequel leading into the other. It's giving you that little bit at the beginning to say, hey, we're back. But then it leads into something completely else. So... It does all the right right things. Um, it brings back Tom Cruise. You get Val Kilmer back in a cameo, which I'll get into later about how that's handled. And, um, of course, you get Goose's son. Now, obviously, he was a he was a, a child. I think like, like a five- or six-year-old little boy, I think, in the first film. So other than that, we get no returning characters into the film. These are all new characters surrounding these three from the, from the original, even the character that Jennifer Connelly plays Penny uh, Maverick's love interest here. She technically is a character that was brought up in the original, which I liked that because it didn't just feel like we were forcing this new person he meets and has no history with. I think adding history of her character, uh, having Maverick and, and her having history is key to this relationship working because if we would have fallen into him just meeting this, this girl and falling in love quickly, we would have fell into, I think some of the same problems that I had with the, with the love relationship in the first film. So that's why in this film, I bought into it more because we find out that Penny uh, was brought out in the first film. Meg Ryan, Goose's wife had brought up about how Maverick had dated the, the Admiral's daughter, Penny a long time ago. This is the character that Jennifer Connelly does play. And we find out that every time Maverick had come to port, they kind of had an on again, off again romance. So when he immediately starts falling back in with her and she's falling for him, to me, that whole thing works because of that history. 
that history is so important to this relationship because I don't want to say it happens quickly here. Um, It doesn't take that long to happen, but at least I'm buying into their feelings being there because they had feelings for each other before. So it was just feelings that came rush came rushing back. So it works. It works on that level for me. So that already right there is a positive over the first film for me out of the gate, out of the gate. But the air sequences are, are excellent. The action's excellent. Excellent. The story's excellent. So, all right. So now that I've broken down my minor thoughts, I'm going to get into spoiler alert territory with the, with the synopsis. I'm going to read the synopsis out, the plot, which is going to detail the film from beginning to end. So if you've not seen the film, spoiler alert. That's the spoiler alert alarm. So that means that means right now, when I sound that horn, that means if you have not seen the film yet, we're going into spoiler territory. So fast forward. Once you hear the horn, here we go. The plot synopsis for Top Gun Maverick. Over three decades after the events of the first film, Captain Pete Maverick Mitchell is serving as a U.S. Navy test pilot who has avoided promotion to continue flying. As Rear Admiral Chester Hammer Kane approaches to shut down the hypersonic Dark Star scramjet program and redirect the funds to drone programs, Maverick flies the prototype to its speed objective, then pushes further into hypersonic speed, destroying it. Kane wants to ground Maverick for his recklessness, but instead sends him to NAS North Island as a Top Gun instructor, as ordered by Maverick's friend and former rival, Admiral Tom Iceman Kaczynski, the commander of the U.S. Pacific Fleet. Maverick is ordered to train an elite group of FA-18E-F Super Hornet aviators assembled by Vice Admiral Bo Cyclone Simpson and Rear Admiral Solomon Warlock Bates for an urgent mission. The mission is to bomb a foreign country's unsanctioned uranium enrichment plant. The plant sits in a deep depression at the end of a canyon and is defended by surface-to-air missiles and fifth-generation freighters operating from a near air, air base. Maverick plans an attack with two pairs of Super Hornets, which will fly through a canyon and destroy the plant. The aviators initially rebuff Maverick, particularly by the self-confident Lieutenant Jake Hangman Saracen and by Lieutenant Bradley Rooster Bradshaw, who is the son of Maverick's late best friend and RAO, Nick Goose Bradshaw. As the aviators train for the mission, friction develops between Hangman and Rooster, who resents Hangman's cavalier attitude towards his wingmen, while Hangman criticizes Rooster's caution. As the aviators observe Maverick's skill, they reassess and coalesce around him. Meanwhile, Maverick reunites with former girlfriend Penny Benjamin, to whom he reveals that Rooster's now-dead mother made him promise to keep her son from flying. To that end, he blocked Rooster's application to the Naval Academy, setting back his career. Maverick later meets with Iceman, who has throat cancer and communicates by typing, but reassures Maverick about teaching the team. Days later, Iceman dies. Maverick and the team attend his funeral, and with Iceman gone, Cyclone removes Maverick as mission trainer and sets new parameters that are less risky on approach, but riskier on egress. However, Maverick makes an unauthorized flight of the simulated course with the original parameters, proving that it can be done. Cyclone is convinced and reluctantly appoints Maverick as strike leader. Maverick chooses the mission team and is paired with Phoenix and her WSO Bob, while Rooster is paired with Payback and his WSO fanboy. Hangman and the remaining aviators are put on standby. The team launches from the aircraft carrier USS Theodore Roosevelt, while the cruiser USS Letty Gall fires Tomahawk cruise missiles to destroy the airbase near the plant. 
The team reaches the plant and destroys it, but are attacked by surface-to-air missiles and a pair of patrolling Su-57s. When Rooster runs out of countermeasures, Maverick sacrifices his jet to protect him and ejects. Believing Maverick to be killed in action, the remaining aircraft return to the carrier. Against orders, Rooster turns back and saves Maverick from an Mi-24 helicopter gunship, but is shot down by another service-to-air missile and ejects nearby. The two reunite and head towards the destroyed airbase, where they steal an F-14 Tomcat and head back to the carrier. Maverick and Rooster shoot down two intercepting Su-57s, but a third arrives as they run out of weapons and countermeasures. Hangman arrives from standby to shoot down the Su-57, and the planes return to cheers on the carrier while Maverick and Rooster reconcile. Sometime after the mission, Maverick and Rooster are working together on a P-51 Mustang at a hangar near the test facility where Maverick was previously stationed. Penny arrives with her daughter Amelia, and Maverick takes her for a ride in the P-51. Rooster walks to a photo board and acknowledges a photo of their mission's success alongside a photo of his late father and a younger Maverick as the credits come across our screen. Thank you to Wikipedia for the plot description. So, all right. Let me first, by beginning, that the last 35 to 40 minutes of this film, which I believe is about a two-hour and 20-minute film, 226, 225, had me on the edge of my seat. Uh, Staying in spoiler territory, there really was a genuine moment where I honestly thought they were going to kill Maverick off. I really did. I was getting the the feels and the vibes from the uh, the 007 film, No Time to Die, which, mind you, I should do a podcast on that film because the ending of of, the, of Daniel Craig's last still has me really fumed and, and angry. So I really thought they were going to go down this track with this film. I was ready to go nuclear. I really was. The moment felt right. The buildup to him him possibly being killed felt as though it was being done the right way but it almost felt as though they were pushing it too hard to the point of okay we're not gonna go down this train we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna hint at it and then retcon it that's what they did and i'm okay they did that because even though they hinted at it too heavily which is maybe my one and only gripe with this film it was done in a very cool cool way because i was gripping my seat and when Maverick's plane goes down, I was like, are you kidding me? And I really thought they were going to keep him dead. I really did. So I'm thankful that they kept him alive and they did a good job in doing it and how they handled it. Okay, so I'm going to go back to the beginning of the film. First off, like I said before, the, the film begins just like the original, the same music cues, the same kind of similar shots on the carrier with the, with the beating sun kind of coming down on the craft. I thought that was a beautiful touch. I love that it opened the same way. I was hoping when I got went into this film that the film was going to open the same way. I was really hoping that it would. So I'm really glad that it that it went that far. So we pick up, we get to to Maverick in a hangar working on a on a plane. Uh, puts on the iconic jacket and speeds off towards a test flight. Now I love the test flight sequence. I thought the test flight sequence was really cool, uh, trying to push the boundaries of speed. And the fact that Maverick goes against orders is so Maverick from the first film. Uh, it just goes to show he hasn't changed one bit. I thought this sequence was really cool. The music cues were excellent. Um, and I thought it was a really beautiful scene to really start the film on. Uh, at this point, the film already felt like it was going in a different direction than the first film. 
Um, it felt more modern, which it should have. They didn't try to push the the 80s vibes under the film. That that's another thing that really that really got me with this film too is that I, I really thought that the film might play too much into the 80s nostalgia and might push the boundaries a little too much with that. And I thought it might feel too much like an 80s film and it might not feel current and that might actually ruin it. That that's what I really thought might happen here. And I, I'm so glad it didn't. It it made sure to keep things modern but it made sure that when it added its little 80s touches throughout the film, it felt they felt subtle and they didn't feel like they were forced in or over the top because we even get our little flashbacks with scenes from the first film. But those are put in there at a, at a very good point. Um, they're not overdone. They're not overshown. They are shown at the right moments and they're shown briefly. So we kind of get a little bit of the feelings vibe. There's a scene where, where Maverick is kicked out of the bar because he can't pay the tab. And Rooster goes in and starts playing Great Balls of Fire like his father did while he was sitting on the piano in the first film. By the way, Miles Teller, excellent rendition of Great Balls of Fire. I love that scene. I've been listening to the soundtrack on Apple Music. I've been listening to his version of that song over and over for a while, along with the opening tune. I, I can't get those out of my head, but I love it. It's fantastic. And uh, I can't get it out of my head. I've been singing and tuning it for, since I saw the film and listened to the soundtrack. Uh so in that scene, when he's playing the song, Maverick kind of goes up to the window and looks in and sees it. And then we're getting flashes of, of Goose playing the piano and playing it next to his wife. And I, I, I loved that because when, when Maverick's eyes start tearing up, I could feel it in that moment. And I guess maybe I felt more of an impact with it too, because I had watched the, the first one again the night before. I think I was feeling a lot more of the, uh, the small little touches from the first film and just the overall story. The, 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 the story with Maverick and, and Goose's son rooster that there is really the true heart of the film. Um, and I think that still all comes from me watching it the night before, but I am so happy this film gradually built the relationship up. It didn't rush us into their conflict. It didn't rush us into a resolve, it didn't push them having physical or full-on encounters. Everything was kind of just sprinkled in, and it progressively happened, like real life would. You know, a lot of things in real life, if we're having problems or tension with somebody, a lot of times we will we will take moments where we just uh, progress slowly to maybe a, a confrontation or explaining ourselves or trying to find resolve. We don't just jump into a full-on fist fight like a lot of movies will do. They'll just force a confrontation and it's got to be a full-on brawl and be intense. You know, real life is not always like that. Maybe in certain situations it is, but in, it's not really like that. And it plays up a real-life scenario with this, and it doesn't push us having all these confrontations between Rooster and Maverick. So I, I kind of appreciated that, and that's one thing about this film that I want to pinpoint is something that I really liked about it. And I think that this film does extremely well. Uh, so when Maverick goes and gets the mission, he walks into the Top Gun facility for the, uh, for the first time. I, I would think maybe in the 30 plus years from the first film, I don't think he's really been in this building since then, but you see a picture of, of Iceman hanging on the wall. And uh, I like the way Iceman is in this film. Um, of course, I would have loved to have seen Val Kilmer more, but of course, with his health issues and not really being able to talk, they did the best they could with it. Um, if the film had been made 10 years earlier, maybe circumstances would have been different and Nice Man would have played a bigger role here. 
but didn't happen that way. But the fact that they were still able to get Val Kilmer into the film and be able to still show Iceman and be able to honor him, that that goes a long way because we really don't get a lot of a lot of cast members from the first film here anyway. So having Iceman in there as, as the second person out of the three that, of characters we get is kind of nice touch. Uh, Val Kilmer is really only seen in one scene in the movie. Uh, he's texting Maverick through certain scenes, but we only get to see him one time, and we find out that his cancer has returned, Iceman's cancer returned, and he's probably not going to make it. So he's sitting in the office with, with Maverick, and they're having this heart-to-heart moment where Maverick doesn't think that you know he can send... Uh, rooster on this mission this is where i get the feeling that maverick maverick really has tried to be the father figure to rooster and and i liked seeing maverick care and maverick's biggest problem in the first film was that you never really felt like by the end of it that he had fully grown up and even when this movie starts you don't really feel like he's really grown up but as this movie goes through we really see maverick mature and we could see him being that family man. I couldn't see him being that really in the first film. And that's why his arc here from beginning to end, his arc from getting to end from Top Gun 1 to this, is so it's, it's really beautiful. It really is a beautiful way of, of looking at his character because there is so much progression from movie 1 to, to the end of this film. And, and whether there's a Top Gun 3 or not, I don't know. But Frankly, I'd be content with this if this was it, because I think he gets the perfect ending to his storyline. Anything they do beyond this might just feel forced. So that scene with with Iceman was just was excellent. And even though we really only get to hear maybe a total of 10 to 15 words actually come out of Al Kilmer's mouth, which I guess was AI done because he really can't speak. Just in that moment, that heart-to-heart that him and Iceman have. I, I, I watched the first film, and I watched that scene there, and very happy with, with, with the fact that him and Iceman got that moment before he passes away. And the fact that they actually kill off Iceman's character had me a little surprised. Um, I didn't necessarily think they were going to go down that route, I mean, there were scenes in the trailer where it showed a funeral, so I knew somebody was going to die, and I started getting the feeling that it could potentially be Iceman. But then there was also the potential of it being just another one of his um, people he was training, that Maverick's training. But um, which that surprisingly doesn't happen either. Nobody in in nobody of his new recruits gets killed off in this film, which I was really surprised because they almost went down that route. And there's actually a moment where I thought. It had happened because based on the dialogue with him and Rooster, it sounded like that he had lost one of his comrades, but it turns out it was the other comrade was in the hospital and recovered. So that's kind of surprising too. But um, the air sequences are fantastic. They're, they're amazing. Something I've never seen in a film before. So I applaud Tom Cruise and the rest of the filmmaking team on this because it really makes the film special makes the film stand out. And that is why they keep saying about seeing the film on the biggest screen possible, because I think you want to have that fully immersive experience in the cockpit with them. Uh, based on what I was reading, it, I guess that they had uh, the actors, they went through 
three months of air training for this. So they were actually flying. They weren't using stunt pilots, which bravo, bravo on that for sure. But if I read this right, they were holding cameras in front of them in the cockpit and they had to fly or whatever it was, or they had to put the camera there and they had to kind of do their own thing, which is really, again, unique. And I never really seen filmmaking like that. It might set a whole new bar of what's going to be done from this, this, this way out. Um, so the relationship with Maverick and Penny, I'm, like I said before, I'm satisfied with the way they handle it. Uh, they get just enough screen time together to make it work. And if I compare Penny to uh, Maverick's previous relationship with Charlie, Colleen McGillis' character in the first film, there's a reason why it works. Because... I never really bought into him and Charlie having a, a, a future together. It just didn't seem, it didn't seem feasible to me. It felt like a, a fling. That's what it felt like. Even when the film ends, you know, and even if they, if they love each other, it still felt like a fling. And if there had been one film and we went and got the sequel, you, you could have made up how they ended up together all you wanted. Me, I wouldn't have saw them together. But the relationship here, it works. And the reason why the reason why is Penny Penny doesn't want to fall back in love with Maverick, but you could tell that she still is even when the film starts and they see each other. You could tell she still has feelings for him. But we get the moments of them riding on the bike together. So even a moment after they share an evening together where they're, where they're just laying in bed and they're talking. And it just, see, that was for me, that, that was something that was missing in the first film. After you had the love scene in the first film, it just kind of cut like, like, like it was some hot moment going off and then we're continuing the movie. Whereas in here, they didn't play up the love scene factor. There was no need to. And they're literally laying in bed together talking about things. And this scene goes on for a good solid five to six minutes, I think at least. And that's what made the relationship work for me because they talk. They're talking to each other. They're talking about each other's careers, their lives, and, and, and her daughter. And even she's talking about, you know, his conflict with Rooster and the things with Goose. And she's pushing him about staying and, and committing yourself to training these, these people because they need him. Those are why the relationship work because they're going through those relationship, those relationship difficulty steps, development, and that's why I like the relationship and why it's so much better than the relationship with Charlie. So that right there has got me with positivity for 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 what they did here. Um. So by the time we get through to the end of the film. I was I was kind of wondering who the bad guys really were because we never really get told what country it is with 
with with this uranium. The theory online is that it's supposedly Russia. Now, I don't know if the film purposely didn't tell us who the bad guys were because they weren't trying to put a country label on it because they want that film to do good in that country. They don't want to throw another country under the bus. I don't know if that's what it is or the film just chose to do it this way because they didn't feel like it was necessary. I don't know what the agenda was there. It doesn't really matter. But I couldn't help but scratch my head and wonder who the bad guys really were because even when we're seeing the Jets, we see no no country code, no country flag. We Even when we see the guys in the cockpit, we never even see faces. They have helmets on, and we don't see anything with a country flag or anything. So there's no indication as to what country these bad guys are from. We're not even told where the Jets are flying to. We get told the mountains where this facility is, but we never get told where that actually is. So it's it's interesting that they they chose to go the route of not telling us who, what, where the villain was. Uh, it's an interesting choice. So all in all, in conclusion, so my overall thoughts on this are pretty simple. Number one, the film is, it's better than the first film. Now I know, I know a lot of you, a lot of you fans of the original people that were raised on the eighties film or saw it when you were in high school, or whatever, you're probably saying I'm nuts. There's no way that this is better than the first film, but hold on a second. When you watch the film, take a step back. Ignore your feelings on the eighties nostalgia and the feelings of the eighties, the music, you know, the outfits, what have you. And really take a good look at this film as a whole. Look at the story. Look at the way the relationship is handled with Maverick and Penny with the love story. The relationship he has with Rooster's son. And how that all, or I'm sorry, not Rooster's son, but uh, Goose's son. Sorry about that. Goose's son. Just see how that all builds. How we get how we get a, a really, through the first, second film, we really get a beginning, middle, and end with both films combined together. But this film builds the emotional arc so well and really focuses on Maverick's relationship with Goose's son, which is key. It's the key to this whole film. The, the film is called Top Gun Maverick, but it easily could have been called Top Gun Brotherhood or, or, or Top Gun. Um, I don't even know. I, I, I'll say brotherhood or, or fatherhood or, or, um, I don't know, something to that degree. It could have been called one of those things. Or Top Gun Family, or or whatever, whatever. Just ignore my chance of trying to name these right now. But uh, And also take a good look at, I mean, the action, of course, and the flight sequences are better than the original. No, no hands about it. But just the way the, the, the story progresses at the beginning of this film all the way to the end. Pay close attention to how the story is told. The dialogue's better, too. The dialogue doesn't come off cheesy in this film like it does in the first film. Sorry. Um, all the side characters here, too, I think, are, are better as well. I think they're better developed. I cared more about them. I mean, probably the only other character beside Rooster that I really cared about in the... Um, in, in the flight team probably was Phoenix, played by Monica Bar Barbaro. She was the only character I thought that really stood out in the, in the group. I'm the one that plays Hangman, played by Glenn Powell. His character was good as well. So I'll, I'll give it credit. So, so I'd, I'd say Hangman 
and Phoenix probably were the best developed ones. Whereas if you look at the first film, other than Iceman and of course Goose, the rest of the team you didn't really care about. They really didn't play a part in anything. They were just kind of there. And then just the the final act of this film is just, it, like I said, edge of your seat, grip in my seat. I mean, literally. First film, the last act, I didn't find it to be that engaging. It wasn't like pulse-pounding final act. It was, it was decent, but you compare it to this film, the final act of this film blows the first uh, final act out of the water. And then overall, the 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 ending, the ending arc on how we get to our finishing parts of the film, where the film ends up, is just so much better too. There's there's finality to Maverick's story here. You really feel like he will stay and potentially marry Penny, and that will be his life. Maybe maybe staying as a Top Gun instructor, finally giving up the always having to be in the cockpit all the time. Maybe he might finally grow up to that point. That's what I feel like might happen. Uh, he may not. But I feel like it could, you know, and then his relationship with Rooster, you know, Goose's son is, is, um, is resolved. So it, it, like I said, you're a fan of the first film. Great. But don't ignore the fact that this is a better film overall. This film makes the first film better. Easy. Easy. Uh, today I was thinking about this. When I was thinking about doing this podcast today, I I was thinking about the movie a lot. And I think I can honestly say, honestly say, that this film might actually be in my all-time top 10 favorite films. Now, I don't want to put it in there yet because... I've only seen the movie once, but the film has stuck with me. And, and to me, that's pretty key because if a film sticks with me long after I've seen it, especially if I've only seen it once, then I know it's something truly special. So I can honestly say no matter what, this film is truly special just works on so many levels. Story, characters, emotion, action. Doesn't feel too long. So when I go see it, whether I see it a second time in the theater, hopefully in IMAX or Screen X, or when it comes out on digital or 4K, Blu-ray, I'll have a better, better way of how I feel about it if it belongs in the top 10. Because in order to reach my top 10, the movie's got to be have serious replayability where I could just pop it in at any given moment, and even if it's on in the background, that that that's how I know that a film really is in my top 10. You want to know my top 10, go to the top 10, uh, or go to our, some of our all-time favorites podcasts we did on the show uh, previous episodes ago. You'll kind of get an idea what my top 10 are and what I feel out are my favorites. My worst ones, too. <laughs> that's a fun show. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I can say that I think it's going to be in my top ten. I really do. I really do. I think it's going to be something I could probably go back and watch and just keep on in the background. I really do think that. But we'll we'll wait till I see it again to form a better a better opinion on it. So, uh, my final rating of the film. Now, I do my ratings on a 
on our site, I do them by A, B, C, F, you know, A, B, C, D, F. On the podcast, I usually do my, uh, we usually do our ratings by out of 10. So my final rating, I'm going to go with a 9 out of 10. 9 out of 10. This is a very good film. It's a great film. But one thing I didn't discuss that I will now, now that I'm talking about this, now that I think about it, people need to remember something. A lot of these films today, they come out, I'm going to get political, they come out with a woke agenda. And I think this is why this film is doing well at the box office. Because the movie is very pro-American. It doesn't have a woke agenda. It doesn't feel the need to shove those political, that political bullshit onto you. It's it's not afraid to be pro-American, that you know America's tough and has the American spirit. That was what's so great about the first film, too. There's just not enough pro-American films out there, and this movie is it's about as pro-American as it gets. If I was younger, I probably would love to join the Air Force and fly these planes. I really would. I'm at that age now where it's I'm kind of past my prime to do that, but this film would be very easy in order to recruit me. I mean, I think the first film they said had like a, a huge amount of recruits wanting to join the Air Force for the first film. And the same thing will probably happen here. Maybe even more so. Um, but the movie... I, I, all I have is one thing to say to Hollywood. Take an example from this film. Take an example from how it's done at the box office. Take an example of how people have received the film. This movie set the box office record for Tom Cruise's best opening weekend ever. His first one ever to reach $100 million in an open weekend. And I believe they said it's also now his one of his probably his highest grossing film of all time domestically in the U.S. So let it be an example to Hollywood. It's okay to make a pro-American film. It's okay. I understand you're knee-deep in with China and other countries, and, be, and you have to please the masses. But don't. Don't. If you're an American-made film, then be pro-American. Don't throw Americans under the bus to please China or other countries. Just don't do it. Or throw in your woke agenda stuff. You know. Right now we're dealing with that whole the whole gun control debate and you know, um, you also have the whole debate with the whole um, non-binary, he, she, they, them thing. You don't need to shove that stuff in the films. Okay. If people choose to have that point of view and they're okay with it, then fine. That's fine. They can, they can live life how they want. But don't put it into film trying to shove the viewpoints on to me to try to get me to think a certain way. Everybody thinks how they think. You're not going to force a point of view onto somebody. If they have their mind made up on how they think of things, that's the way it's going to be. Plain and simple. Plain and simple. And that's all I got to say about it. That's all I got to say about it. I'm just putting it out there. I'm not, I don't want to get political about everything, but I feel like I had to a little bit to just really explain as to why this film is doing so well. That is part of the reason why the film's doing well. It's a great film, 
but it's also because the film does things that unfortunately some other films have done that have hurt the box office have hurt people's viewpoints on watching films that are made today. So please take an example from this film. It's okay to put pro-American themes into a film. It's okay to put mainstream family views into a film. Just like it's okay for them to, 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 to make films about certain things too. It just depends on what people want to see. Forcing them into mainstream films is not the way to go. And I'm hoping this will be a wake-up call to Hollywood that it's okay to make pro-American non-woke films. Take the example. Okay, everyone. So thanks for joining me uh, on this Top Gun Maverick podcast today. Um, hope you listened. Hope you, uh, if you have not seen the film yet, uh, please go out and see it. It's, it's a truly excellent film. And, uh, again, support, support your theaters. It's, it's great to have movie theaters back. This is a good example of how movie theaters really are booming back. Um, I'm one where I think the film, the movie theaters should not go anywhere. I mean, I like streaming movies from home. Don't get me wrong. Oh, that leads me to another point too. Physical media over streaming any day of the week. I will say that time and time again. You'll never change my mind on that. I will take a physical disc any day of the week over streaming it online. I want the copy in my hand. But so anyway, what I'm saying was theaters are important. Seeing a movie in the theater is truly special. Watching it for the first time at home does not have the same impact as it does in the theater. It just doesn't. You don't have IMAX screens at home. You don't have big, big, you know, 120 feet, 100 foot screens with, with the kind of sound they have. And nothing really beats the theater experience going to a theater with with your friends or your family. It's it's just it's just a fun it's a fun day, fun night out. And uh, theaters are really important. So uh, support your local theaters, support your theater companies. Go out and see movies in the theater. Uh, I know tickets are expensive. Don't get me wrong. But there's a lot of alternatives out there with with how to do things. I myself have the eighteen dollar a month Regal Unlimited plan, and I get great use out of it. If you see a lot of movies like I do. Uh, it's a great way to do it. It's great and convenient. And you go see two movies, it's already paid for itself and then some. So uh, definitely do that. Definitely do that. I really encourage that. And check this movie out on the biggest screen possible. Uh, I'm still going to try to go see it in IMAX or Screen X. I really want to go see it, hopefully, before it's gone. I think it'll be out a little while. But uh, definitely check it out. Highly recommend it. All right. So coming up on LCA Entertainment, we're going to be returning with our Supernatural Retrospective. As we'll be concluding it with seasons 11 through 15, we unfortunately have gone a while without doing it. Uh, we're still awaiting Martin Houston to uh, finish his his viewing of the series. He's moving pretty quickly on it. Um, so we're hoping to maybe do that within the next month, I'm hoping. Uh, we'll be pushing some more episodes out along the way, too. I'm going to discuss with the rest of the team as to what we're going to be doing next, uh, whether we'll be diving into the retrospective or doing more of these kind of one-offs. Um I'm hoping uh, my next or uh, my next appearance with the group or uh, the next podcast will be on the upcoming Jurassic World Dominion, which is expected to be the final installment of the Jurassic Park saga. Um, I'm due to see it this Thursday night with uh, one of our old uh, podcast, uh, one of our old podcast part of the team guys, uh, Alistair Engelhart. So uh, Alistair Engelhart may in fact be coming back to the uh back to the podcast team on a temporary basis as he's available. So I'm hoping to talk to him and maybe get him on the Jurassic world dominion podcast episode. 
uh, whether it'll just be he and I on the episode or it'll be uh, me and the rest of the team, including, you know, Jeremy, uh, Jason Kabasik and Martin Houston. We will see how that's going to go. But um, I'm going to talk to Alistair on Thursday night when we see it uh, and see if he wants to be a part of the uh, the podcast for it. So that'll probably be our next episode, Jurassic World Dominion. Really excited to see it, uh, hoping it gives the Jurassic Park saga a proper send off. So thanks for joining me today. Uh, be sure to go to the website, lcaentertainment.org. You can still go to lcareviews.com. Still is available, that URL, but uh, start using lcaentertainment.org. That'll become our more permanent URL. Uh, you can email me at mikewinkler at lcaentertainment.org. If you have any requests for the podcast or requests for reviews or have any questions for for me and the rest of the team, uh, we're going to try to get them some emails opened up as well. So you can email them if you so choose as well. Uh, and the podcast will keep coming out. But you can also go on our site to read our written reviews of films, television shows, short films. Uh, I'm going to be pushing out some more reviews there as well. Uh, written review of Jurassic World Dominion will probably be up on Friday. And then the podcast to come soon after. So um, subscribe, as I said, on the podcast before. Uh, the podcast on Apple Music, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Spotify, CastBox. Basically, wherever you listen to your podcast, you can find us. Uh, you can search for us at LCA Entertainment. Um, some places you might have to search for Lights, Camera, Action, Entertainment Reviews, but that's fine either way. But subscribe and listen. Uh, follow us on our Facebook page at LCA Entertainment. Uh, even on Instagram at the LCA Entertainment with underscores between the and LCA. Um, be sure to do all that. We 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 lo- we love you fans for supporting us, and we hope you continue to support and bring in some more supporters. We love doing this. We love bringing um, all this content to you all. So thanks, everyone, and uh, we will see you on the next episode. That's a wrap. Cut and print. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast. And coming soon, we conclude our Supernatural Retrospective as we cover Seasons 11 through 15. To read our written reviews, subscribe to our podcast, listen to our podcasts, and go to our gaming streaming channels, go to lcaentertainment.org. You can subscribe to our podcast on all major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, and CastBox. Thank you for listening and subscribing to LCA Entertainment.